1: Presented by AT and T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, the sinking of the RMS Titanic on April 15th of 1912 is perhaps the most famous of all maritime disasters. But it's not as though that was the first time passengers were cruising on a ship. Nope. Well before the Titanic, passengers were traveling across the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and North America. Uh, And I know that it might seem like we're travel obsessed lately because we keep talking about our Paris trip, which you can still sign up for. uh, If you go to our website and click on the Paris trip link at the top of the page. Uh, But this actually came up. In an, a whole other avenue, uh, there is another, another podcast project I'm working on, which hopefully you will know more about soon. But it, the subject of cruises came up on it, and it, it piqued my interest in terms of where it had come from historically. So here we are. I decided I should do a whole episode where I could just look at that on this show. So I thought it would be really interesting to uh, examine the early years of the cruise industry way before what we think of as a cruise ship today ever existed. They were not floating cities at this point. Uh, And we're breaking this one sort of into two sections. So first, we're going to talk about the initial push for ships to start carrying passengers as a part of their business model rather than just an add-on in empty cargo space. And second, the first true cruise ship and its relatively short period of service. Uh, For those of you who like maritime disasters delight. There's a little bit of that involved here. Um, There is also, we should warn you, an instance of suicide. So if that is not something you're comfortable hearing about, be warned. Uh, It happens late in the episode, and we will give you a heads up as we near that point. It's actually going to be right after the second sponsor break. Ships were,
0: of course, carrying cargo across the Atlantic for centuries before the idea of carrying passengers in any sort of vacation sense existed. The man who is often credited with first shifting this mindset is Jeremiah Thompson. By the time Thompson, who was a textile importer, had this idea, he was living in New York, but he had been born in Yorkshire in northern England, and he had made that journey across the Atlantic himself by boat when he emigrated as a teenager.
1: Yeah, definitely not in any sort of vacation sense. (laughs) We have talked before about when people would book passage on transatlantic ships just to get from one to the other and the various ways they have to shove in with parcels and animals and unpleasant conditions. So this was definitely that kind of thing when he made the crossing as a teen. And Thompson, his uncle, and three associates had all been working together in the textile trade in New York, and they owned a number of ships that they used for that purpose. And while their cargo ships, like others, accepted passenger bookings, it was definitely a secondary aspect of their business. Passengers were not prioritized. Uh, Everything was basically timed and planned around the goods that were aboard the ship. And as such, schedules were almost always inconsistent, which left would-be travelers in a sort of hurry-up-and-wait situation, while the shipping company held departure up for loading more cargo or waiting for ideal weather but Thompson realized that they could probably make more money by prioritizing passengers, their comfort, and their schedules. Thompson and his business partners
0: announced their intentions to do just that in the papers of New York in late 1917. Quote, In order to furnish frequent and regular conveyances for goods and passengers, the subscribers have undertaken to establish a line of vessels between New York and Liverpool to sail from each place on a certain day and every month throughout the year.
1: This was, on its own, an entirely novel concept. But the notice went on to promote speedy crossings of the North Atlantic, also novel, and, quote, accommodations for passengers are uncommonly extensive and commodious. So for the first time, a company was offering up the idea of actual comfort while crossing the ocean.
0: It may have sounded unreal, but Thompson and his associates were professional shippers, after all, and they knew how to run a business, In January of 1818, the first two of their ships departed New York right on schedule, and the company stayed on schedule. It also had to add new ships to meet demand and ended up running two ships each way per month. Their line came to be known as the Black Ball Line because of a black circle painted on their sails to identify them. If you're imagining, even though I just said (laughs) sails, if you're imagining a thing that looks anything like a steamship, no, this was still a vessel... With sails sailing (laughs) under wind power, Um, there are there are some images, like uh, illustrations, still of these ships, and they do not look like a cruise ship today.
1: No, not at all. And we'll talk about sort of how uh, steamships eventually supplanted these these ships. yeah, it's interesting, right? You The way this setup goes, you would normally expect, like, and then they said it was going to be comfortable, and then they said it was going to be fast, and then they said it was going to be on a schedule. You're like this isn't gonna work, guys, but it did. They were so good at keeping this whole thing together. Uh, And part of that was because the management of the company offered incentives to captains to keep those calendar dates. So if they made their trips in less than 22 days traveling from New York to Liverpool, or less than 35 days on the Liverpool to New York trips, which took longer due to wind patterns in the North Atlantic, the captain would get a reward. And for his work, the captain, who was responsible for everything aboard his vessel... Got a new coat, and his wife would get a new dress. And this reward system seemed to work because Blackball got a really good reputation for reliability. The
0: Blackball line got a fair bit of press for their new business model and how successful they had been at implementing it. And that gained them new business in both passengers and cargo, which made other shipping companies want to step up their own game to stay competitive. It wasn't okay anymore to simply run supply ships on the, well, we'll leave when we're loaded and arrive when we can
1: approach. (laughs) Yeah, initially they were like, why would you want to prioritize passengers? That's just secondary. And then a couple years in, they were like, we would also like to prioritize passengers, please. (laughs) Soon, other companies were running their own scheduled lines and offering better passenger accommodations. And this, in turn, drove the shipping industry into a more service-minded mode of operation, which then drove physical change in how the ships were built. In 1823, Black Ball once again staked its claim above other competitors when it launched its new ship, the Canada. The 525-ton vessel was lavish in ways no ship had ever been before. It featured things like skylights in the deluxe cabins, silk curtains, Turkish carpets, and a fancy dining room with beautiful furniture, among other luxurious design details. The Canada's beautiful decor
0: set off a new race among all the shipping companies to offer similar amenities for their passengers. And this desire to offer more sumptuous accommodations and entertainments meant that ship designs had to shift to offer all those things without losing their cargo space. After all, they were still carrying things like mail and textiles and even livestock, some of which were used to feed the passengers aboard in rather fine style.
1: Yeah, one of the the accounts I was reading talked about the ship's cow. So they always had fresh milk on the crossing, and and how sometimes you know the animals, some of the animals would be used uh, to be slaughtered and then used in meals. And they would have chickens that could lay eggs, and that really this is kind of the beginning of the idea of cruises and food together. <laughs> because <laughs> for a lot of people, the food was the best part of the trip because it was all very fresh. A company called the Dramatic Line, run by a man named Edward Knight Collins, gave Blackball a run for its money starting in 1836. Dramatic started building flat-bottomed boats like the ones that were required to traverse shallow waters at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Collins had been running ships to New Orleans, but he realized that he could use that same flat-bottomed design to optimize space for transatlantic voyages.
0: The ships in the dramatic fleet were aptly named. They were the Shakespeare, Sheridan, Garrick, Siddons, and Roshius, and they were massive. The Roshius weighed more than a 1,000 tons, which was a record at the time for ships that were running out of New York. But it was the passenger cabins that really set the dramatic line apart from the black ball. They were as much as three times the size of what other companies offered, and they were higher up on the ship, not below the deck.
1: Yeah, they felt that passengers would be more comfortable uh, up higher. They would get better air circulation. They would not be as prone to seasickness, uh, which all sounds lovely. Also, we should point out that even though their accommodations were three times larger than other ships, they were still tiny. I mean, even if you uh, have been on a a modern cruise ship, the rooms are still pretty small. Unless you are very, very wealthy. And this is, you know, far past these ships in terms of evolution of space. So... The idea, though, of a separate steerage class, which uh, you'll often see talked about, formed sort of organically uh, during these decades. If there was a cargo space that wasn't being filled with letters or parcels or other goods, some ships continued to sell reduced fare tickets for people to bunk there without any of the amenities like dining and entertainment that a regular ticket afforded. People who purchased these discounted tickets had to bring their own food, and they were allowed to prepare it in a designated space on deck, so long as they remembered to also bring pans and pots and any other utensils required to do that prep. And this really wasn't all that different from how people had booked passages before the idea of passenger amenities was introduced. It just meant that now there were different levels, both literally and figuratively, of travelers.
0: In a moment, we will talk about the celebrity status that some of these captains achieve, but first we will pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
1: we mentioned just a few moments ago how Blackball rewarded its captains with bonuses in the form of coats for jobs well done and captains actually took on an odd sort of celebrity in the time that the cruise industry was in its infancy Passengers could actually book passage with specific captains if they wish, and especially skilled ones came to be recognized for their ability to deal with weather issues and manage their crew and socialize with their passengers. This job became a very coveted one for men with the skills to handle all of these different needs, as they also took a share of the revenue for the cargo. So one of the things that was involved was, like, for X pieces of mail, you will get some tiny, tiny fraction of money for each piece of mail. And so they would all get that kind of, like, as a revenue share of their their company's work. They also usually owned a, a portion of the ship in terms of, like, both getting the revenue from it and having responsibility for it. Uh, The sailors who worked under them, though, worked very, very hard in jobs that were often very dangerous and sleeping in quarters that were far less comfortable than most of the passengers had.
0: But traveling aboard this combination cargo and passenger ship, which was called a packet ship or packets, wasn't the pleasure vacation of today. Even if there was beautiful furniture involved for the people who could afford a premium ticket... While there were normally women's quarters on such vessels, the vast majority of the paying passengers were still men on business. These were generally booked as one-way trips, a way to get to either Europe or North America. And the time aboard the ship was more comfortable than ever, but it was still a means to get to a destination. You were not doing this for fun.
1: (laughs) No, it would be like, I'm sure there are people that do it, but very few are like, let's just go get on a plane for fun today. <laughs> like, you have to, you normally have a place in mind where you're trying to get to. Yeah. And if the plane ride is enjoyable, great. But that's not really your vacation. Uh, so, <laughs> Even so, these transatlantic crossings were growing in number with dozens of ships traveling from New York to Liverpool, London, and La Havre and staying on schedule became more and more important because it became a means for the various operating companies to distinguish themselves. I know I just compared it to the airline industry, but again, very similar where you will hear airlines tout their stats for like not canceling flights or always arriving on time, very similar. And the U.S. was building a very strong relationship Reputation for its excellence in this industry.
0: Part of that strong reputation was a very small rate of accident or loss. In the first 20 years of this industry, there were only two ships lost. The first of this was the Albion, which was part of the Black Ball line. On April 22nd, 1822, three weeks after leaving port in New York, the Albion, under the command of Captain Williams, ran aground and slammed against rocky terrain on the
1: southern coast of Ireland, really early in the morning, sometime between 3 and 4 a.m., Seven of the Albion's 24-man crew survived and two of the 28 passengers, but everyone else aboard died, and the cause in this case was bad weather. A written account by a local man named John Purcell described the situation when he arrived on the scene shortly after the ship hit the rocks, and he wrote, quote, "'At this time, as it blew a dreadful gale, with spring tide and approaching high water, the sea ran mountains high.'" Mr. Purcell and several other men were able to get the survivors to safety. Uh, He describes in this, this account that he took in a number of them and the other men that were with him each took in a number of people. And they also built coffins for the bodies of the recovered dead. The second ship lost
0: in the transatlantic passenger and cargo business was called the Crisis. It's the name of the ship, which was part of the Black X line. In the case of the crisis, it was making its way back to New York in 1826, and it just never made it to port. Somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, it presumably sank. Although these two incidents were obviously tragic, the work of the packet ships traveling between Europe and the United States was seen as very safe because it was
1: only those two. The second half of the 19th century saw massive growth in passenger bookings on transatlantic lines. The idea of truly premium accommodations started to come into play, and steamships became the standard. Up to that point, all of the tightness of schedules was largely about leaving port on time, but things were still a little bit wiggly when it came to making port on the other end of the journey on a schedule because, as Tracy had mentioned earlier, you're still using wind power largely. (laughs) Um, And once the reliance on wind was less of a factor, comings and goings were more precise at both ports on any given cruise.
0: Now we're going to jump ahead a bit to 1900. That year, the world's first steamer, built exclusively as a tourist ship with no intent of hauling cargo or mail, was launched at Hamburg, Germany. The ship was the Prinzessin victoria Louise, and it was part of the Hamburg-American line. It was christened by the Countess von Waldersee, née Esther Lee, who had married German Army Field Marshal Count von Waldersee.
1: The idea for the princess in Victoria Louise began with Albert Ballin. In 1886, Ballin had joined the company HAPAG, you'll see that H-A-P-A-G, which is an acronym for a much longer German name that I dare not attempt for uh, <laughs> for desire to not uh, turn it into a horrible jumble of words. Uh, and that is sometimes synonymous with, you'll sometimes see it written as that company running the Hamburg America line or uh, just being synonymous for it. And uh, the Hoppeg company's business included a great deal of emigration travel. As people left Europe to move to the United States, the Hamburg-Victoria Line transported them. And that company started in 1847 and initially used sailing boats like the packet ships used by the Black Ball Line and its competitors, but eventually they like everyone else transitioned over to steamships.
0: Albert Ballin, who had an immigration agency as a family business, was a perfect fit for Hapag. He worked his way up the corporate ladder and in 1899 became the head of the company. At the beginning of the 1890s, he had initiated the world's first leisure cruise, which was a trip along the Mediterranean aboard the SS Auguste Victoria. This was the first time the journey aboard a passenger ship was billed as the vacation itself. Fallon himself was a passenger on the Auguste Victoria, and he interviewed the customers aboard to see what was working and what could be changed.
1: Yeah, so just for clarity in case it's confusing... That ship was still the type of ship that had originally been built to carry cargo and passengers, but this was the first time that it was used as just a vacation in and of itself. And then this next ship that we're talking about is the first one that was built entirely just as a passenger cruise ship. So as he took control of the company, Ballin came up with another first, and that was a ship that was entirely designed and built for passengers. The Hamburg-America line commissioned the shipbuilding firm of Blohm & Voss to construct what is often called the first purpose-built cruise ship. Thus, the Princessin Victoria Louise, named for the eight-year-old daughter of Kaiser Wilhelm II, came to be, and Balin, who oversaw the entire project very closely from design to completion, became the father of the leisure cruise.
0: This ship was huge. It was 400 feet or 122 meters long, 47 feet, or 14.3 meters wide, and 27 feet, or 8.2 meters deep. It was also 4,419 gross tons, which measures not weight but internal volume. The hull was made of steel plates flush-fitted with countersunk rivets rather than overlapped.
1: Yeah, it was built like a a luxury vehicle, basically. Um, also, I should point out, in looking at various different um, records, those numbers in its lengths... And width and depth are a little bit different depending on which one you look at. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the cause for that disparity is, but it's it's always small disparities. So if you look at it anywhere else and are like, that's not quite the same number. That's why I can't explain why that's the case, but we see it in different numbers all over the place. And as a cruising yacht, this ship was designed, as we said, entirely for leisure. And every aspect of it was completely modern for its time. In addition to having cabins that were well-ventilated, which had been a long-term problem on passenger ships, it featured a massive dining room, a smoking lounge, a parlor for lady passengers, a dark room for any travelers that wanted to develop their vacation photos there on the ship, and a gymnasium, among other amusements and amenities, and it carried only first-class passengers.
0: After it made its initial voyage from Hamburg to New York, the Prinzessin traveled to the Caribbean and then to the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Eventually, the ship's primary route was from New York to Jamaica, offering a tour of the West Indies. On December 12th, the Prinzessin Victoria Luis left New York, bound for Kingston, Jamaica, with Captain H. Brunswick at the helm. While the ship boasted 120 cabins, there were only 75 passengers aboard.
1: And before we get into the story of how that cruise played out, we are going to pause for a break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. Hey listeners, as we get into this next section, I just want to remind you, this is uh, the segment where we will talk about the suicide we mentioned at the top of the show. So if that's not something you want to hear, you can maybe fast forward uh, to the very end or just skip this last part.
0: What happened on the Princess and Victoria Louise's trip was initially reported this way. The ship made port at its destination as scheduled and then headed back to New York. On December 16th, it ran aground just below the lighthouse at Port Royal as it was exiting
1: Kingston Harbor. There was no inclement weather. The waters were smooth and calm. All of the passengers were safely evacuated to Kingston. Two other ships, the Duguay-Truin of France and the Bremen of Germany, were nearby and quickly moved to the scene to help. Though those on board initially had been afraid, once they were reassured that they were going to be moved to land, the evacuation went completely smoothly.
0: But despite everything post-grounding going as smoothly as possible, Captain Brunswick locked himself in the cabin and shot and killed himself. It's really not clear exactly what happened to the cabin, but his employers were completely taken aback. In a statement given by the president of the Hamburg America line, Emil L. Boas, he said, quote, Captain Brunswick was one of the most capable captains in our service. I cannot account for his act except on the theory that his pride was crushed by the accident and that he believed that only death would wipe out what he regarded as a disgrace.
1: But a follow-up to this story, published on December 29th, 1906 in the New York Times, offered a slightly different version of events. As uh, you know, even in today's modern world where communication is much faster, sometimes when you get the breaking news story, all of the facts aren't entirely correct. And then later on, there's like an amended story where, where everything kind of gets smoothed out and the reality is described. This is kind of what happened in this case. Uh, This version had been relayed by survivors once they had returned to New York aboard the steamship Sarnia.
0: The accounts of those who had been aboard all indicated that the ship had been entering the harbor and not exiting, as had initially been reported. Captain Brunswick, upon approaching the harbor, issued signals indicating that the ship needed a pilot.
1: So a maritime pilot, in case you don't know, and this job still exists, is a person who serves as sort of a navigation expert and advises uh, captains on maneuvering through spots like port entries and exits. The pilot is normally local to the area, so they would be someone that is like on standby at a port entry because they then know all the specifics of the waters of that area intimately and they use that knowledge in advising ships and guiding them safely.
0: But though Brunswick requested a pilot, nobody came. So he decided to anchor near Port Royal rather than try to navigate into the harbor without assistance. But in doing so, he misread the lights on the shore and he accidentally headed straight for the lighthouse.
1: Yeah, apparently he thought the lighthouse he was seeing was a different lighthouse, so he was just completely oriented mentally incorrectly uh, in the map in his head, and he basically literally ran it right aground. According to the ship's steward, F.O. Schroeder, it was 9.30 p.m. on the night of the 16th when this happened. The captain immediately sent out a boat to report what had happened and went directly to his quarters where he shot himself. And this countered an earlier report that made it sound like the captain had waited a couple of hours before he took that, that final step.
0: The passengers were kept on board through the night. They weren't informed of the captain's death, and in the morning, the crew formed a line of boats to the island. Passengers went from boat to boat along the line to get safely to shore.
1: The Bremen, that German vessel we mentioned earlier, tethered itself to the grounded Princessin and actually tried to haul it off of the rocks and back into the water, but that effort was ultimately unsuccessful. Three days after the wreck, on December 19th, the Hamburg-America line ship was deemed a loss.
0: In 1907, a German court determined that Captain Brunswick had been negligent in his duties.
1: And the loss of the Princess and Victoria Louise, which, again, all passengers survived, was completely eclipsed by the sinking of the Titanic less than six years later. But the cruise industry, despite having ups and downs, has survived despite these these tragedies, and in fact thrived. In 2017, an estimated 25.8 million people went on cruises globally. And a study cited in the 2018 Cruise Industry Overview, which is published by the Florida Caribbean Cruise Association, estimated that an average cruise ship pulling in at a port of call in the Caribbean or Latin America generates almost $676,000 just by virtue of pulling in and spending a few hours there uh, in spending by passengers, crew, and the cruise line.
0: Yeah, it's complicated. I've been on a number of cruises and uh, often there will be converse- conversations among the people who are going or like, what's the environmental impact of this? Is that offset by like the economic benefit that's coming into the Caribbean? How does that economic benefit affect the lives of people that actually live there? We have a lot of very uh, lengthy conversations <laughs> yeah. about all of that. Um, and also like it. Uh, you were, we, we have talked about, like, people continued to go on these in, in spite of this incident. People also continue to go on cruises, even though norovirus is such a known hazard right. on cruises that there's, like, a whole procedure when you are embarking <laughs> on the ship where, like, you have to attest to the fact that you have not been ill in the past however many hours. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I have not been on a cruise. I have been at sea many times, like, deep sea fishing, but mm-hmm. I have not been on a cruise cruise. Um I think that may be about to change. <laughs> we'll see, and I'll report back.
0: Uh- <laughs> I'm very curious about how this goes because you oh, and I no. have had some conversations about about cruising and pros and cons, it's and
1: not the cruise you think it is, okay. Which uh, helps get around my problem. My problem, right, is that you're on a ship. I would most likely do, like, a Disney cruise. That's not actually the one I'm looking at at the moment. Uh, and while I love Disney, like, the idea of being trapped on a boat with a bunch of um, little people, you know, kids, makes me a little nervous because I'm not a kid's person. And mm-hmm. once I reach my threshold, there's no return. Like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> and so, so uh, I'm a little concerned about that. But I found a cruise that I doubt many children would be on. Uh, just because of its theming, which is not filthy in any way. It just has to do with such an old, nerdy pop culture property that I don't think any kids would be interested.
0: (laughs) I know whenever we mention our likes and dislikes on the show, we get a lot of uh, ideas from listeners. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. Holly and I have already talked about how cruise ships have lots of entertainments for children, and there are lots of adults-only spaces on them.
1: Yes. But I have also had friends who are very much aligned with me mentally who are like, oh no, you can't escape them. So um, until, <laughs> totally partitioned off, this will always be a danger. Yeah. And I bet your kids are the best ones, but I'm just not comfortable around kids. It's no diss on the kids. <laughs> I, it's just not not my space of comfort. Uh, and when I'm on vacation, I would like to be as much as possible in my space of comfort. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that is the scoop. Do you want to hear some listener mail that has nothing to do with cruises, but does go back to our slightly grown-up topic of the history of vodka? I
0: sure do, because we've gotten some great email about vodka.
1: Really great email, more than I can read all in one thing. But uh, what I really liked is we got several interesting ones. We talked in that episode about how vodka is to some degree sort of a universal solvent. It gets used to clean and disinfect things, and it gets used to spruce up uh, clothing in lieu of dry cleaning sometimes and, you know, various uh, treatment for ills. And so we had a number of people write in with new things that I did not always know about uh, that vodka gets used for. One of them is from our listener, Peggy, who writes, love the podcast, listen every day. I am learning for knowledge sake, not so I can just pass a test, which to me is like the best way to learn knowledge. And she writes, my daughter is an amazing cake decorator. She backs this up with a beautiful photograph of a cake that her daughter made. Uh, self-taught, who likes to work with fondant. And she uses vodka to smooth out her designs. I'm including a picture of one of her creations, a Finding Nemo-themed birthday cake for a child. Thanks again for all you do to make my boring job wonderful. Uh, I did not know about this trick of using vodka to smooth fondant, but you better believe I'm going to use it going forward because Mm -hmm. I get in wrestling matches with fondant and make an ugly mess. Uh, (laughs) We also got one from our listener, Gregory, who wrote, uh, I hope you're staying warm. I'm up in Wisconsin where the snow won't stop coming. I'm relatively warm here in Atlanta. It's not a sweltering heat wave, but we've been in the 50s, which is fine. Uh, Tracy's probably colder than I am. It snowed here yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And Gregory writes, your vodka episode reminded me of when I was studying abroad in Kyrgyzstan and one of my host families gave me a vodka remedy for my sore throat. In the cold room I slept in with my host brother, I was given a cold towel soaked in vodka as a local cure for my sore throat. It did not help, but it was an interesting experience nonetheless. Uh, Thank you for that info. Good to know you can skip the the vodka-soaked towel around your throat. And then... Uh, Perhaps my very favorite of these surprising uses of vodka is from our listener Allison, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, thank you so much for the wonderful podcast. It makes my commutes to and from work much more entertaining and makes up for missing out on a lot of history classes in favor of science classes during much of my schooling career. I just listened to your episode on vodka, and I wanted to add a fun fact from my own field, which is veterinary medicine. "'For as long as I've been in the field, "'every clinic I've ever been at "'has always had a bottle of vodka tucked away in a cupboard, "'and why it's there has become one of the favorite questions "'to answer for new people in the field.'" Vodka when diluted and given intravenously to a patient suffering from antifreeze toxicity can save their life. It prevents the creation of the byproducts which will cause organ failure and make the antifreeze so deadly. This can technically be done with any ethanol, but the favorite I've encountered has been vodka or perhaps Everclear. And yes, in case you were wondering, patients get instantly drunk when this treatment starts. Looking forward to see what's coming up next and hope you're having a wonderful start to 2019. I never ever ever had heard heard this story, which is surprising to me because I, uh, have known a lot of veterinarians, and I always ask them a lot of invasive questions about their jobs because I find it fascinating. Never learned this one, so thank you, Allison. Brand new. Also, obviously, we are not suggesting you do any of this yourself. Uh, (laughs) uh, But that's a good little piece of info to have. If you would like to write to us with your surprising use for vodka or any other historically interesting tidbits, you can do so at historypodcast at howstubworks.com. You can also find us pretty much anywhere on social media as Mist in History. You can go to mistinhistory.com. To find our webpage, which is where you can sign up for that trip to Paris. Again, Paris trip at the top with an exclamation point takes you right to all the info. Or you can listen to any of the back episodes that have ever existed of our show for all time, long before Tracy and I were ever involved with it. And we encourage you to also subscribe to Stuff You Missed in History class. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?